going to now turn to the Word of God, to the New Testament, and to the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, chapter 6. Chapter 6 of the first letter of Paul to Timothy, and I'm going to begin to read from verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolishness and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honour and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are riches, riches, rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, 
ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. May God bless to us the reading and the preaching of his word, and to his name be praise and glory. Amen. Well, thank you, Chairman, for your kind words of welcome and introduction. Uh, I was thinking in what I would say when I would respond to the Chairman's remarks, and I, I can only say that, that the Christian Institute have made a great impact on Northern Ireland because um, they came quite quietly about a year and a half ago and at a few meetings in some local churches but this time, when I tracked them down and discovered where they were, they were in the Citadel of Power, the great uh, Parliament building in Stormont. And there was uh, the chairman and, and Humphrey, Humphrey addressing the, the political elite of Northern Ireland, uh, from the Unionist Party to the DUP and some independents, and they were listening with bated breath to what he had to say. So that's a kind of influence the Christian Institute has made in Northern Ireland, but I would also like to make the point that I believe Northern Ireland has made a great impact upon these gentlemen because since coming among them these days, they've been talking about their visit and about the people that they've met and the kind of language that we use in Northern Ireland, it certainly made a distinct impression on them. And so a good association is being built up between the Northeast and Northern Ireland and we trust that that will develop and grow as, as we export some of our best sons and daughters uh, to this part of the world. And we trust we can be of some help and support to the Christian Institute from Northern Ireland. Well, this happens to be, I believe, the last in this series of lectures on the commandments. And I thought before we would begin, I would bring to your attention a text uh, which doesn't relate directly to the ninth commandment or the tenth commandment, but it's from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. And I think this relates to why we're studying the commandments. 1 John 2 and verse 6, Whoever claims to live in him, that is Christ, must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And of course that begs the question, well, how did Jesus walk? How did Jesus live? And he lived in submission to the law of God throughout his life. He walked in the way of the Father, and the way of the Father is the way of the law, submitting to the moral law in every detail. And so we need to know the moral law if we are to live as Jesus lived. We need to know the moral law if we are to reflect the family likeness, if we are to display the beauty of holiness, 
before our fellow men in this world. There are some today who despise the commandments, who set them aside, who say that they are redundant, they are of no value. But that is not of God. It's one of the devil's lies. And I would also make the remark at the outset that we are not saved by keeping the commandments. Some people get the false impression that those of us who stress the commandments and who teach the commandments are somehow or other thinking that we are saved by works or by merit. We are not saved by the commandments or by keeping the commandments, but we are saved to keep them. So bear in mind that distinction. Not saved by keeping the commandments, but saved to keep them. <clears throat> Stephen Glover writing in the Daily Mail at the time the Football Association was scandalized by the behavior of some of its officials, concluded a feature article in the Daily Mail entitled The Lying Game. And this was his words. Lying has become institutionalized. It is the way we live now. And the lies lead back to Downing Street where at the fountainhead stands Tony Blair. Stephen Glover's assessment. Not sure he's a Christian, but don't think he is a Christian, but that's how he's evaluated life in Britain today. Four years before Tony Blair became Prime Minister, 1993, Tory Minister Jonathan Aiken spent a weekend at the Ritz Hotel in Paris courtesy of a Saudi businessman. He falsely claimed that his wife settled the bill. The media got scent of the deception. Aiken went as far as the High Court in an attempt to sue the media over what he claimed were false allegations, in the course of which he committed perjury by claiming under oath that his wife had paid the Ritz bill. But the truth came out as it often does. This leading star of the Tory party and Privy Council member was convicted of conspiring to pervert the course of justice, given a prison sentence, and impoverished by his £3 million legal costs. A humbled Mr. Aiken later commented, I have learned many lessons. I hope I never tell any lies again. Lying has become institutionalized. And with that introduction, we now lead into the ninth commandment. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. You shall not give false testimony or false witness against your neighbor. <clears throat> the ninth commandment plainly teaches that we must tell the truth at all times. Truth, friends, is never open for negotiation. The Bible is quite blunt when it speaks out on the use of the tongue. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 22. The Lord detests lying lips. The Lord detests lying lips. Proverbs 19 verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who pours out lies will not go free. 
And very solemnly in Revelation 21 and verse 8, liars are listed among those whose eternal place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Unrepentant liars condemned to hell. So this is, without any hesitation, a vital subject. And so let us think, first of all, that truth should always characterize our speech. Truth should always characterize our speech. We must never forget that behind all the commandments lies the character of God. There's a real sense in which we can discover the nature of God by reading the commandments. You want to know what God is like? Read the Ten Commandments. Reflect on the Ten Commandments. That gives you an appreciation of the eternal God who is spirit. God who is a spirit infinite, eternal and unchangeable. And his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. And if that is true of the Ten Commandments in general, it is undeniably true of the Ninth. For God is truth. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 tells us that God, something that God cannot do, it is impossible for God to lie. Sometimes it's used as a, a trick question with children. Uh, is everything possible with God? And in the, in the general sense, yes. But here's the exception. It is impossible for God to lie. Lies, sadly, are a prominent feature of man's speech. But such lies do not find their origin in God. Rather, they have their origin in Satan. As Jesus pointed out to the Jews of his day, John 8, verse 24, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And we see him at his lies in John in Genesis chapter 3, deceiving our first parents, leading them to eat the forbidden fruit. The scriptures are God's word of truth. When God's Son, Jesus Christ, walked this earth, he personified truth, declaring to his disciples in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the truth. He personified the truth. As well as personifying the truth, he declared the truth. He proclaimed the truth. To Pilate, he said in John 18, verse 37, In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Then added, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so he personified the truth. I am the truth. He proclaimed the truth. For this reason I was born to testify to the truth. And as well as that, he sent the spirit of truth. John 15, 26 and 27. When the counselor comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. Friends, the the God that we worship is, as the psalmist expressed in Psalm 31 and verse 5, the God of truth. So the fountainhead of truth is God. And the fountainhead of lies is the devil. And so we ask the question, to whom do we belong? We know by nature that we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But by the grace of God, we have been redeemed. We have been saved. We have been reconciled to God by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are no longer children of wrath. We are no longer children of Satan. We are no longer children of the evil one. Rather, we have been adopted into God's family and have become children of the living God. And if that is the case, if that is the case with you, then truth ought to characterize your life. Then truth ought to characterize your speech. Then the spirit of truth ought to be manifest as you live out your daily life. Ephesians 4 verse 25. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now I suspect most of you, if not all of you, profess to be Christians. You profess to belong to the family of God, whatever church you're associated with. How well, then, are you representing the God of truth? Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 13 informs us that the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. The remnant of Israel will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in in their mouths. I wonder, could that be said of each of you? Sadly, we all struggle to some extent in this area. As James informs us, the tongue is a difficult member of the body to tame. Alistair Begg makes the point, as we grow older, the incapacities of old age may prevent us from some of the sins of our youth. But one problem area that is not neutralized by the process of time is that of the tongue. If we have failed in our earlier days to cultivate truth in our inward being, we may find that old age is marked by exaggerations, by flattery, and a delicious delight in rumor. We may be amazed at the carefree way in which we may sin in this respect time and again. So truth should always characterize our speech. But then developing this a little further, we notice secondly that truth should not be sacrificed on the altar of service. Truth should not be sacrificed on the altar of service. What do I mean by that? Well, sadly... 
there are some Christians who have tried to justify lying on the grounds of necessity. For example, it was the only way of getting the Bibles through. Or, if I hadn't told a lie, the guards would have confiscated the Christian literature. Or, if I hadn't lied, my friends would have been arrested and put in prison. You may have heard people argue this way. But how foolish, I believe. How sinful. Because as I read the Bible, I never see it discriminating between legitimate lies and illegitimate lies. For the Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 21, no lie, no lie comes from the truth. And the solemn words of Psalm 101 and verse 7 ought to perpetually challenge us. A verse which reads, No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. But then some will respond and say that scriptural support can be found for what has been called the lie of necessity. For example, did not Abraham lie to save his life? Genesis 12, verses 13 and 19, or later on in Genesis 20, verses 2, 5, and 12. Or did not Rahab lie in order to protect the spies in Jericho? Joshua chapter 2 and verses 4 to 6. Since these servants of God lied, it is argued that we too may lie, especially in times of danger especially in times of war. But this is not a sound argument. We must remember that the Bible paints as heroes, warts and all. Abraham did lie, but he also committed adultery. This does not justify adultery. In order to prove that lying can be right on certain occasions, we would have to prove that not only did Abraham lie, but that he lied with God's approval. And that we just cannot do. If we take the the case of Rahab, remember she was a Canaanite, and she had recently come to faith, in the God of Israel. She had many things to learn. Her sanctification was far from complete. Although she demonstrated faith in the God of Israel by hiding the spies, we're not to say that she was right in lying. What we can do and what we can prove is that God permits us in dire circumstances to conceal or withhold part of the truth. We see this from God's command to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, in verses 1 to 5. God commanded Samuel to do two things in Bethlehem. First of all, to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and secondly, to anoint Saul's successor. When questions were asked, Samuel was to tell that part of the truth 
that was insignificant to the enemies of God, that he'd come to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice. And he was to conceal that part of the truth that would have led to violence. That he was there to anoint Saul's successor. The point that we must notice this, he was not permitted to lie. G.I. Williamson, commenting on this passage, writes, God is saying in effect, while evil men may not have a right to know all the truth that we could tell, we do not have the right to tell them lies. Of course, the foolishness of the lie of necessity is exposed when we ask ourselves the question, does the God who cannot lie, does the God for whom it is an impossible, an impossible thing to do, require his servants to lie in order to advance his cause in the world? Does he require his servants to lie in order to protect his people when they are in danger? Is that the kind of weak and puny God that he has called us to believe in and that he has called us to serve? Of course not. He is the almighty God. He is the all-sovereign God who can throw the enemies of his people into confusion in a moment. As we see over and over again in Scripture, David testifies in Psalm 71 and verse 24, My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long, for those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. Those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. About 30 years ago, there was a bright young Christian from South Vietnam called Hien Pham. He was a translator for the Americans during the Vietnam War. Eventually, as those who are my generation will remember, the Americans pulled out and the Viet Cong took over. Hien was imprisoned and subjected to a barrage of communist propaganda because of his collaboration with the Americans. And the propaganda was so fierce and so intense that doubts began to creep into his mind about, about faith and about the love of God. But God reassured him in a wonderful way. The Viet Cong tore apart confiscated Bibles and used the pages as toilet paper. One day, he and came across a scrap of paper when he was cleaning out the warden's toilets, and it contained these words, the words of Romans 8 and 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so Hain was reassured, and he was restored, and he was revived in his faith. And he realized that even in this great setback that had fallen upon him, it was all part of God's eternal purpose and would work out for his good in the end. And shortly afterwards, he was released. And at that time, conditions in Vietnam were very, very difficult for Christians. And Hien and 53 others decided to flee. And they built a boat in order to make their escape to Thailand and 
You, you also may have heard of the boat people. Well, that's what Hain had decided to do. The boat was almost ready when, on an evening, knock came to the door, and Hain went to the door, and there were four Viet Cong. He recognized them as such. And they said to him, uh, we hear that you've got a boat and are about to leave the country. And he said, no, no, no. And so he convinced them that, that he had no boat. And when they left, he was greatly convicted that he had told a lie, that he had disappointed his God, that he had offended his God. And so he was resolved never to tell a lie again. A few days later, these men returned and they said, our information is that, that you have a boat. And they said, yes, I have. We plan to leave with others. And these Viet Cong turned to him and said, well, we want to go too. <laughs> and so they joined him and 58 of them were on this boat and it was a hazardous journey and many perished. But in the midst of a storm, these four Viet Cong were young, strong men who were experienced sailors. And they saved the boat and they were able to, to arrive in Thailand safely. And Hien is now a successful businessman in California serving Christ. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Truth and speaking the truth should be a priority with us at all times. And then thirdly, in relation to the ninth commandment, truth should make no accommodation for falsehood. Truth should make no accommodation for falsehood. Man-made rules can be more rigidly adhered to in a church than the law of God. For example, sometimes more fuss is made over what people wear when they come to church, than the implications of the ninth commandment. And the verdict of Isaiah about his generation is still very relevant to ours. Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. Friends, truth... Truth ought to be the hallmark of our lives and the hallmark of our dealings with others. Peter urged his readers to love one another deeply from the heart. His great desire for them was that they would grow up in their salvation as God's word nourished them, as God's word fed them. It was in that context that he gave them this challenge. Therefore, Love one another deeply, therefore. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. He was basically telling them to keep the ninth commandment. Four points we want to consider under this head. First of all, rid yourselves of slander of every kind. The New Bible Dictionary is this to say about slander or tail-bearing. All tail-bearing, whether false or not, malicious or foolish, especially between neighbors or brothers, is condemned and punished by God. All tail-bearing, condemned 
and punished by God. Slander springs from the heart of the natural man, excludes from God's presence, and must be banished from the Christian community. Alistair Begg gives this good advice when writing about slander. He writes, It is a good discipline to test our speech by asking of what we are about to say, especially when it concerns another person. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Slander, he writes, usually fails in all three kinds. Then he adds, Just because a thing is true does not mean that we have a right to report it. And it is dangerous to injure people with our tongues, for we will be judged for all our careless words. So rid yourselves of slander of every kind. But then secondly, rid yourselves of gossip of every kind. A gossip is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as an idle talker, newsmonger, a person guilty of engaging idle talk, (coughs) tittle-tattle, etc. Most, if not all, of the tabloid dailies are filled with little more than gossip columns, stories about people's lives, written up to titillate the nation. The feature writers know this all too well. But these are put in to sell the papers. Nearly every community has its gossip. The person with whom you would never share a confidence. For you're pretty sure that within hours it would be widely reported. And sadly the Church of Jesus Christ is not without its gossipers. And untold damage is done by people who delight in spreading information about other people. Information about other people which they've been given no authority to share. Solomon recognized the damage gossip could do. Proverbs 16 verse 28. A perverse man stirs up dissensions and a gossip separates close friends. Tasker writes... It would be difficult to estimate how many friendships are broken, how many reputations ruined, and the peace of how many homes destroyed through careless gossip, often indulged in for lack of something better to do. And there's more of a grain of wisdom in the little rhyme by William Norris. If your lips would keep from slips, five things observe with care to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where you speak. Rid yourself of slander of every kind. Rid yourself of gossip of every kind. Then rid yourself of flattery of every kind. The man who wants to sell you something will sometimes use flattery to lower your defenses. For example, He may say say to me when I I go into the the shop, try on a suit. That suit looks perfectly on you while thinking to himself, it's bulging out all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Or 
we can use flattery to deceive people into thinking the opposite of the truth. Oh, you're looking really smart today. When in our minds we're thinking they're really looking rather drab. The sexual predator uses flattery to seduce his victims or her victims. Proverbs 7 verse 21. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattery of lips, she forced him. Also Proverbs 29 verse 5. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. And religious con men often use flattery to entice men and women into their cult. In this respect, Paul's conscience was clear for writing to the Christians at Thessalonica, he could say, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-6, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. And Begg makes the point, if gossip is saying something behind a person's back that we would never say to his face, then flattery is saying to a, to a person's face what we would never say behind his back. So rid yourselves of slander, of gossip, of flattery, and then rid yourselves of exaggeration of every kind because it also is an infringement of the ninth commandment. People can often be guilty of exaggeration. I remember as a child hearing people say, I never slept a wink last night. And I thought that was awful because if if I took half an hour as a child getting over to sleep, uh, I would almost uh, go into hysterics. Until I realized that what people meant by saying they never slept a wink last night was that they woke up four or five times and It took them maybe about 15 minutes to get over again. So I don't really take much heed to people who say, I never slept a wink last night, so I have little sympathy for those who maybe cannot sleep through the night. People often exaggerate to get sympathy. Sometimes also people minimize a problem because of pride. One of my elders has two men working for him, When one man tells him about a family illness, he says that you can usually divide that by two and it's not far of the mark. And then when the other man tells him about a family illness, you can usually multiply that by two and it's not far of the mark. People have this difficulty about communicating exactly what has happened, either to get sympathy on the one hand or to because of their pride on the other Or sometimes we exaggerate to curry favor. We tell the manager that his plan is marvelous when the truth, when in truth we doubt very much his wisdom. All to keep in with him, all with the hope of enhancing our promotion prospects. Lies, friends, are very prevalent in our 21st century world. 
But 3,000 years ago, in the days of King David, the situation was pretty similar. For falsehood then prevailed, as we see from Psalm 12 and verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. And then the psalmist asks upon God to enter into judgment upon such liars. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Having thought about the ninth commandment and its implications and its applications, we must ask the question, who can stand? Who is innocent of breaking this commandment? The answer is none of us, not one of us, for the law condemns us. But again in Christ we have one who kept the law for us. First Peter two twenty two he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And so if we want to be clothed with the righteousness of the ninth commandment, then we must flee to Christ. We must be found in Christ. And he takes away all the guilt of our deceitfulness. He takes away all the guilt of our flattery. He takes away all the guilt of our slander and exaggeration. And he clothes us with his perfect righteousness so that we are justified freely by his grace. Come then to consider the 10th commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 17. A man tells me a lie. I may not know immediately that it was a lie, but after checking the facts, I quickly discover that it was a lie that he has broken the 9th commandment. And that is practically true of all the 10 commandments, except the 10th. The 10th commandment is different because it relates to an attitude of mind. It relates to the disposition of the human heart. Exodus 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. As we take time to consider this commandment, let us think first of all about its character the character of this commandment. The late James Montgomery Boyce pointed out, the 10th commandment is perhaps the most revealing and devastating of all the commandments, for it deals explicitly with the inward nature of the law. Covetousness, he writes, is an attitude of the inward nature which may or not may not express itself in an outward acquisitive act. Alistair Begg makes the same point. Coveting is distinct from the other nine commandments. Each of them involves observable behavior. But a covetous heart may not be immediately obvious to others because it is totally inward. The Pharisees, as a religious sect, prided themselves in having an impeccable record with respect to the Ten Commandments. Their attitude came out in the answer of the rich ruler, the answer that he gave to Jesus with reference to the commandments. All these have I kept since I was a boy. 
Luke 18, verse 21. The Apostle Paul belonged to the sect of the Pharisees prior to his conversion. And according to his own testimony, he regarded himself as never having put a foot wrong. Philippians 3, verse 6. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But then came along the Tenth Commandment, a, a commandment that burst his self-righteous bubble. Begg says it was the inwardness of the Tenth Commandment that brought him to his knees. Romans 7, verse 7, he, Paul himself testifies, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. An infringement of the Tenth Commandment, therefore, is essentially and primarily a sin of the heart. And though we may be successful in hiding it from our neighbor, we cannot hide it from God. But are sins of the heart serious? Many think not. But this command establishes the point that sins of the heart are likewise flagrant breaches of the moral law and as such offensive to God. We may manage to convince ourselves that we are innocent of stealing, that we are innocent of murder, that we are innocent of adultery. But when it comes to this command, we find, as Calvin writes, it provides God with a sharper lancet for not only sounding the bottom of our heart, but all our thoughts and imaginations. Everything within us, writes Calvin, becomes exposed and brought to consciousness through the Tenth Commandment. So the, tenth, the character of the Tenth Commandment, it's a sharp lancelet that cuts deep. It's a penetrating command that reaches deep down within the recesses of the human heart to expose its nature. And what corruption lies buried beneath the veneer of a self-righteous exterior. In the words of Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Or as Jesus pointed out in Mark 7 from verse 21, for from within, out of men's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The character of this commandment. But then, secondly, under an examination of this tenth commandment, we notice the expression of covetousness. The expression of covetousness. According to the concise Oxford English Dictionary, covetous is defined as eagerly desirous of another's property. Eagerly desirous of another's property. Shorter Catechism points out that the commandment forbids, quote, all inordinate motions and affections to anything that belongs to my neighbor. That is, any excessive longings and desires for what belongs to our neighbor. Now, the best way to understand covetousness is to see it in action. And the scriptures provide us with many examples. 
Uriah the Hittite had a wife. Her Her name was Bathsheba. She belonged to Uriah and to no one else. Not even the king of Israel had a right to her. But one day David saw Bathsheba, and he liked what he saw. More than that, he allowed his eyes to feast upon her until excessive desire arose within his heart. He coveted. He coveted another man's wife. And this spirit of covetousness, which possessed him, which gripped him, led to adultery and ultimately to murder. Then there was Naboth, who had a productive vineyard. It had been in his family for several generations. But the eyes of Ahab, king of Israel, noticed Ahab, Naboth's vineyard. And he did more than notice it. He desired it. He coveted it. He wanted it for himself. And he was willing to pay the market price for it. But Naboth told him politely that it was not for sale. But Naboth, <clears throat> but when covetousness is raging within the heart, it is not easily appeased. In First Kings 21 and verse 4, we read that Ahab went home sullen and angry. And we read further that he lay in bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife, the wicked Queen Jezebel, came up with a scheme to have Naboth murdered so that her covetous husband might have his heart's desire, might have the vineyard. Another example, Amon, one of David's sons, had an inordinate, excessive sexual desire for his sister Tamar. Such excessive desire, such covetousness affected him so much that his health suffered. Second Samuel 13 and verse 2. Ammon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar. His covetousness became so all-absorbing that he went to extreme lengths to satisfy his evil desires. Even the passionate appeals of his distraught sister were insufficient to dissuade this wicked man from violating his sister's chastity. 2 Samuel 13, 12 and 13. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Grave sins, all arising out of covetousness. These examples from Scripture illustrate for us the route that covetousness takes and points out for us several things about this sin. Let's notice three of them. First of all, it is subtle. This sin often begins in ways that seem innocent and often, in fact, are innocent. Your neighbor has just bought a new car. And you go over to congratulate him on his purchase. You admire the car's many interesting and exciting features. But somewhere, somewhere along the process, desire kicks in. Covetous thoughts begin to emerge. And almost before you know it, you've become ensnared by Satan and found to be a transgressor of the law. 
It is subtle. But secondly, it is prolific. It is prolific. It is a prolific sin in that it seldom exists in isolation. David's covetousness with Bathsheba led to adultery and murder. Ahab's covetousness led to lies, murder, and theft. Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, warned how vile a sin covetousness is. It is a mother sin. It is a plain breach of every one of the Ten Commandments. A plain breach of every one of the Ten Commandments. Writing to Timothy, Paul pointed out, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money, covetousness, is a root of all kinds of evil. So it is a subtle sin. And it is a prolific sin. But then thirdly, let us note that it is a dangerous sin. On one occasion, Jesus warned his listeners. Luke 12, verse 15. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. The scriptures clearly reveal that the covetous person, the man or woman taken up with covetous thoughts, will not profit under the preaching of the word. Our Lord illustrated that in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13 and verse 22, explaining the meaning of the seed that fell among the thorns. He said, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, (coughs) making it unfruitful. So someone sitting under the word with a covetous heart doesn't profit because the word becomes unfruitful. Thomas Watson makes the comment, Many sermons lie dead and buried in earthly hearts. We preach, he writes, to men to get their hearts to heaven, but where covetousness is predominant, it chains them to earth. Where covetousness is predominant, it chains them to earth. And he illustrated this point very graphically by saying, you may as well bid an elephant to fly in the air as a covetous man to live by faith. And so that is why we have labelled it a dangerous sin. Not profiting from the word has dire consequences, as Paul made clear in his letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 5 and verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is (coughs) sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Everyone who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No wonder we label this a dangerous sin. And yet many reading through the commandments might conclude that this tenth commandment is of little consequence. After all, they might reason, it is only to do with the thought life. It hurts no one. Such reasoning is entirely faulty. 
does significant damage to the, the coveter and seldom stops with the thought life. And the unrepentant coveter, the unrepentant greedy person is excluded from heaven's glory, is departed from the eternal kingdom, is shut out of paradise. No wonder then, Jesus warned, take heed, take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness. How then can we guard against covetousness? What is the remedy for covetousness? Well, we've looked at the character of the commandment, the expression of covetousness, and now, in conclusion, the remedy for covetousness. Well, there's one simple answer. That is Jesus Christ. Without Christ, separated from God because of sin, man is on a quest for satisfaction. As Augustine put it in his famous petition, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and we are restless until we find our rest in you. Isaiah put it like this, Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. (coughs) The gambling craze, which is so characteristic of our society in the 21st century, reveals to us that multitudes, millions in fact, are seeking happiness and joy, are seeking peace and contentment through money through wealth, through riches. But even the few who win the millions are in for a bitter disappointment, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes pointed out, Ecclesiastes 5 and 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. On one occasion, John D. Rockefeller The American oil magnate was asked by a reporter, how much money does it take to be happy? And Rockefeller replied, just a little more. (laughs) Just a little more. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone satisfies the inner yearnings of the human heart. And the psalmist understood that satisfaction when he penned the words of Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Sufficient provision is made for him in this life. He makes me to lie in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Abundant provision in this life. Abundant provision for the life to come. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now we don't always see the provision ahead of time, but faith, faith in the divine provider should keep us from coveting someone else's provision. For after all we are called in Christ to live the life of faith, believing in Jehovah Jireh, believing in the Lord who provides who meets the needs of all his children. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Get first things first. 
Thomas Watson developing this, develops this point by saying, the root of covetousness is distrust in God's providence. Faith believes that God will provide, that he who feeds the birds will feed his children, that he who clothes the lilies will clothe his lambs, and this faith overcomes the world. Faith in Christ and faith in Christ's sufficient provision will lead to contentment. And so we must ask the question, have you found this peace? Have you found this contentment? Have you found this joy and satisfaction that comes from resting and leaning and trusting upon the Lord Jesus Christ? The spirit of the world sadly has influenced the lives of many Christians, making this contentment a rare commodity. Jeremiah Burroughs writing in the 17th century, must have concluded the same, making him entitle his book on the subject, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Apostle Paul had learned this discipline, so much so that he could write, Philippians 4 verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I have learned the secret, he says. Then in verse 13, he shares with us the secret. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through Christ. And so the secret is Jesus Christ. By trusting in Christ, by relying on Christ, by looking to Jesus Christ, we find peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction. In conclusion, listen to Paul's words to young Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and following. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The remedy for covetousness is Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, finding contentment and joy and peace and satisfaction in him who said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And so I trust that all of you tonight are resting in Christ, the one who alone saves. We're not saved by keeping the commandments, but we're saved to keep them for the glory of God and the advancement of his cause and kingdom in this world. Amen. Right. Questions?
question time. If anyone would like to ask a question, anyone would like to ask the first question? Over here, John. possible to be covetous in respect to things that we could legitimately have that don't necessarily belong to other people that we could have and could afford? Is it possible to be covetous in respect to those things? Is it possible to be covetous about things which we don't belong to others but we would like but can't necessarily have. Is that the question? Which we could have. We could have. Have you got the question? Yes, I've got the question. Um, <laughs> but whether I have an answer or not is another <laughs> question. <laughs> um, clearly the commandment is addressed to coveting something which is your neighbour's. And I think it would be better to give a concrete example if you could think of one um, I mean, if we can afford something, uh, it's we, we often deny ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. For example, there are many things that, that we could have, and I think we've got to check our hearts. If it's, it's, it's hypocritical, for example, for, for me to be driving an old car, and, uh, and uh, the reason why I don't buy that lovely new car is because I'm, I'm wanting to devote... Uh, my money to uh, some aspect of the kingdom's work but all the same time my heart is coveting that new car I think there's something hypocritical about that attitude and so therefore I would have to deal with that in my heart uh, it's, it's a wee bit like Ananias and Sapphira they were coveting the glory that would come through giving their money to the church and apparently giving all of it but yet keeping it and so there was deception and there were lies associated with that. And so we're living a lie, in a, in a sense, by appearing sacrificial and denying ourselves some particular item. And, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, at the same time, appearing to be very holy and godly. So I think it creeps into the, eighth the ninth commandment about lying and deception and hypocrisy. <clears throat> Any other questions? Anyone? Question over here, John. Uh, following on from, well, first of all, thank you very much for tonight. Extremely helpful and challenging. Uh, following on from the last question, you used the expression, I think you said it was from the Westminster Catechism, of excessive desires. Yeah. And I was a bit confused by that because taking the example of Amon and his desire for his sister, is it not a twisted desire rather than an excessive desire? Because excessive suggests that the desire isn't wrong, but it's just too much of it. Do you all get the question? <coughs> no. Would you like to repeat it? <laughs> Excessive desire, should it not be a twisted desire? Is that the... I, I wonder whether excessive desires, to me, suggested that desires could be okay, but it just seems that there's too much of it. 
Yes, so, well, so in that, what, some of those cases, surely it's twisted desire. Something's gone wrong at the root of the desire. The desire. Well, in Ammon's case, it evidently was twisted desire. Yes. You know, but, that's, but there is such a thing as legitimate desire. So that goes back to the first question. Well, um, Paul talks about desiring earnestly the best gifts. And so I am a Christian and, and I, I want to serve Christ faithfully and and effectively, and so I should desire the best gifts in order to serve the Lord. Uh, Paul talks in First Timothy chapter three about uh, desiring the the work of the eldership. If a man desire the work of the eldership, and so I say to young men in my church that they should desire. God may never call them to to serve Him in that way, but they should have that desire in their hearts. Now, if it is an excessive desire, then it will destroy their Christian balance and their Christian life. Um, it's, it's appropriate for young men to desire a wife. Scriptures commend that. And, uh, and, and so, or, or a, a young woman to desire a husband. But if that becomes excessive, it is wrong. And so I think that's why the Catechism uh, qualifies the desire by calling it inordinate. Uh, and then the Ammon is a twisted desire, which clearly is wrong. Any other questions? There's, a, there's one here. Peter. Um, I listen to the radio quite a lot, and um, we hear many uh, interviews of, of politicians and other people in public life who seem to be subjected to very intensive questioning. Um, it seems to me that to some questions, almost any response is going to come under the microscope. Now, bearing in mind that, um, from what we've already said, that lying is out of order, what advice would you give to politicians and others in public life when they're subjected to these extremely, it seems to me, um, aggressive questions, very prying questions? Um, silence is apparently not an option, it seems to me. What, what, advice, advice, what advice would you give, would you give to a politician, to, people in this situation? to Jeremy Paxman, for example? Uh, <laughs> I, he's a television man, mind you, not a radio man, well, by and large. For John Humphreys, that's him. For trying questions. You might be more qualified to answer that. I'm not. <laughs> There are very few privilege of being a chairman. One is not to answer the <laughs> Well, I can understand exactly what you're saying. Um, one occasion, about a year ago, I was asked onto the radio to take, a, uh, take part in a discussion on homosexuality. Uh, and then suddenly the presenter turned and asked a question which wasn't on the topic which just simply had come up on the discussion, which was going to place me in a very invidious position. And I simply said I hadn't been asked onto the programme uh, to, to answer questions on that subject. And I've never been asked onto that radio programme since. <laughs> <laughs> this may have been the consequence of that, but I was, I'm prepared to live with that. But I think that men should not be allowing themselves to be intimidated by, by these, uh, these interviewers and uh, simply state the truth uh, and if they press further, I've already answered that. 
uh, no further comment or whatever, but uh, I'm not trained in that department, and, and uh, I mean, it's not, not easy to be a politician, but if you choose that route, well, then you've got to be prepared to put it for whatever questioning comes your way. But tr truth must always be paramount. Lying, as you say, is not an option. Or deception, or whatever other line it comes under. I don't think Peter's satisfied. <laughs> it's just a supplementary. Um, I, I just, I often wondered whether um, people should be, just be prepared to go down the no comment line more often, rather than saying things like, oh, that's not a question for me. You know, just, just to, to say, yes. I'm not in... Well, I think there would be. I think there would be. I think they would be respected more by the listeners and by their constituents, rather than answering another question that hasn't been asked, because mm -hmm. that's often what politicians do. They they answer a question that hasn't been asked, and then they're asked again, and they answer another question, and then the <laughs> interviewer gives up at that point. But that the, the, the politician, in my view, loses respect. If simply say no, and answer it straightly and to the point, and. Uh, let them leave it at that. Thank you. Question on the extreme left <laughs> as I face the audience. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for what you've said tonight. You've brought to us a, a real challenge. Um, I agree entirely, with, uh, of course, with what you said about covetousness being a, a sin um, in the heart and one that you, you cannot directly see in the way that you, you can see the other uh, mm -hmm. breaches of the commandments. Um, but there are certain ways in which it shows up, aren't they? Before it gets to breaches of the other commandments, surely there are signs of covetousness in our hearts. Would you like to suggest one or two of the signs that we should look for in our own behaviour that should cause us to go back and examine our hearts? Um, do you want to suggest perhaps some of the excessive desires uh, that we should be looking for in order to go back and examine our hearts for covetousness? I think you all heard the question, didn't you? Well, but I think the most obvious one in our society is um, our salary. Uh, are we content with it? Um, I know of one man recently who told me that he discovered what his brother-in-law was earning, and he was in the far in much inferior job than his and he was earning more than what uh, this man was earning and so he was now suddenly discontent uh, and to me there's a, that should be a sign to him that covetousness was rearing its head in his, in his heart and, and we've all got to think about that with regard to are we content with what God and his providence has given us and I think the providence of God uh, has a lot to do with it. For for example, our health. Some people are covetous of other people's health. They're always able to do things. And I'm restricted because of arthritis or because of a bad chest or, or because of this or that and the other thing. And so that's a sign that covetousness is beginning to, to, to rear its head. Some people are covetous of other people because of the holidays that they can take. Uh, they have more time off than, than I have. And so... They, they can begin to see that covetousness there is beginning to reign. And so it has to be checked at the root. Because once this sin begins to breed, it can have all sorts of dangerous consequences. Um, 
people have, are envious of other people's wives. It's an illustration that, that, and then that leads. But once you begin to to dwell on someone else's wife, that's a sign that covetousness is taking root. Other people's property, the house next door, they begin to say, "I have to do up my house as well as his." Well, then, you know, there's something wrong. Those are the lines I think that we need to be examining our hearts.